This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you a mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He said, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him that he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's, if it's uh, a killing or whatever. You just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls. My name is Anthony, and I'm talking to Sky down in Texas. What's going on, Sky? Not much is going on. I actually just got back from a trip uh, to Washington to see my best friend and my little niece-slash-goddaughter, so... Uh, feeling really good. I got away from the heat and got to just play with a little six-month-old baby, and she's so cute and sweet. And so shout out to Jen. Thanks for letting me come. She listens. She's a regular listener, which is a lot of fun. She actually was listening to one of our episodes as like we were getting ready in the morning, and I would like come out of the bathroom and just be like, this is weird to like hear my own voice when I'm also in the room. <laughs> but... But yeah, and I get, uh, I get my second dose of the vaccine tomorrow, so <gasps> things are on the up and up. My second dose is next Tuesday. I am so yeah. excited just to get back to normal and like see mm-hmm. my family. And I mean, I've been kind of seeing them, but to like really hug them and sit down right. at a dinner table and... Oh, totally. Everyone yeah, feels was, this way. I mean... <laughs> yeah, it was so really nice because nice I had, since I had my first dose, I, you know, went to Washington and we had a little bit of a scare where she wasn't feeling, you know, my friend wasn't feeling very well on the first day and she was like, well, I would hate for it to, you know, to be COVID. So let, let me go get, go to the doctor and double check. And uh, the doctor was, she's told my, the my friend told the doctor that I had the first dose and the doctor was like, oh, she has the first dose. Then like the chances of her getting it are like very low, even if you have it, she didn't have it. So that made me feel a little bit better but second dose is like just gonna lock me in so yeah hooray hooray for vaccines and modern medicine but yes should we get started let's do it what are you going to talk about today all right well i am going to talk about one of our adulterers um this story is actually a lot more interesting than i thought so I am talking about number 6483, Leora Eliason. So sources, inmate file, newspapers.com, articles, which were invaluable this time around. That resource has been amazing. Huge. Like, Huge. I feel like our episodes have gotten longer because of it, though. And yeah. that the amount of time I research has like doubled and sometimes tripled because of yeah. it. Yeah. But I love it. It's so amazing. Yeah, I totally am with you on that. Daily Statesman articles, Ancestry.com records, AsylumProjects.org on the girls' training school in Geneva, a Fairmont-Nebraska.org document on Geneva Township, Pocatello.net, Chapter 17, Pocatello Regional Airport from the manual on Pocatello.us, which is the official Pocatello website, an article from the IdahoStateJournal.com titled The History of Pocatello's Airfields by Justin Smith from 2020, another article by Aniko Jordan 
from the Idaho State Journal called Serving the Air Corps, Robinson Lands at Pocatello Officers Club. That was from 2012. Um, A blog piece on American soldiers arriving in Great Britain from the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. The page World War II in the Pacific Theater on visitpearlharbor.org. A couple articles on history.com and then just some brief like statistics from Wikipedia. So... Leora Eliason was born. Leora Leona Fenske on August 17th, 1913 in Battle Creek, Nebraska, which is just northwest of Omaha. And her parents were Charles Henry Fenske Jr. and Matilda Minerva Vorndam Fenske, which is heck of a name. <laughs> Say that three times fast. <laughs> yeah, Matilda Minerva Vorndam Fenske. Uh, <laughs> Leora was the last of four births or you know uh, three living children as far as I could tell she had two older sisters Mary and Gertrude and an older brother Herbert who died soon after he was born so uh, as Leora grew up it was just her and her two older sisters Mary and Gertrude now Matilda her mother died on March 14th 1916 Leora was just two and a half years old and it seems like her father was unable or maybe unwilling to take care of his children after his wife's death because the 1920 census lists him as a hired man on a farm in Logan, Nebraska, which is more central in the state, whereas Omaha is in the very like eastern corner. And the children were all listed in different areas. So Mary her oldest sister and Leora herself lived with Charles's parents, Charles Sr. and Minnie Finsky in Valley, Nebraska, and Gertrude, who's the middle one. This is the weirdest thing that I could tell. So she's 11 years old in the 1920 census. She's living as a roomer, working as a waitress at a hotel in Morton, Nebraska, which is in the western part of the state. Huh. There wasn't a rumor in the boarding house that, as far as I could tell, was related to her. And, like, so normally if you find an 11-year-old, like, living as a rumor, it's because, you know, their mother or something or they've got a relative who's living with them. I couldn't find anything like that. This makes no sense, but apparently she did actually live and work at this hotel in Morton, Nebraska. So I don't really know what that's about. But Leora herself lived with her grandparents. And so by 1930, Leora is 16 years old, and she is again living with her father in Scottsbluff County, Nebraska. And that's he now owns a farm there. And I couldn't find where Mary or Gertrude were in the 1930 census. Gertrude would reappear in the 1940 census with Charles, their father, living in Utah after they had moved. And we'll get into all of that in just a second. Interestingly, also in 1930, the 1930 census, she is listed as attending the Girls Industrial Training School in Geneva, Nebraska. And this is akin, of course, to like the St. Anthony's Industrial School. But this, of course, was for girls only. Hmm. Um, I don't have any idea as to why she was sent there. She admits to this stay on her intake form, but there aren't any details given or anything that I could find that said why she was there. To give you an idea of why she might have been there, the school is described as for girls who were, quote, vagrant or vicious under 18 years old, end quote. Um, Vagrant or vicious? Vagrant or vicious. (laughs) Knowing what I know about her, it seems that it's more likely she was on the vagrant side of things, but I don't know. So... 
All of the family actually end up moving to Utah after Mary marries a man named John Leroy Eliason, and he goes by Leroy. And Leroy is from Murray, Utah, which is just outside of Salt Lake City. She married him in 1927. So the whole family ends up moving out there, and so it seems likely that Leora spent time with Mary and Leroy and got to know Leroy's brother, William Arthur Eliason. So just a tiny bit about William. He was born April 4th, 1911, so he's only about two years older. He was born in Murray, Utah, to a minor father and a homemaker mother, and he had four siblings, including his older brother, LeBroy, and the Eliason family was LDS, which is not surprising in Utah. So... Leora and William get really close, and so on May 17, 1932, Leora marries William Eliason in Salt Lake City, Utah. Almost immediately, basically a honeymoon baby, Leora is immediately pregnant, and she gives birth to a son on Christmas Eve, December 24, 1932. But sadly, this birth is a stillbirth. Um, I found a, a death certificate for an unnamed Eliason baby stated that he died from an intracranial injury that complicated the birth, um, oh. which is so sad. That's um, so heartbreaking. It's oh. so sad. I know. I was like, oh, that's so exciting. Like, good for them. And then I found the death certificate and I was like, this is so sad. <laughs> So at some point after this very sad stillbirth, Leora and William move east to Duchesne, Utah, which is sort of directly east of Provo in like the eastern part of the state of Utah. In 1934, they have a daughter that they name Juanetta or maybe Juanita. There's two censuses and one spells it W-A-N-E-T-A, Juanetta, and then another one spells it Juanita. J-U-A-N-I-T-A. Juanetta seems more likely. They're, as far as I can tell, they weren't Spanish or Mexican in, in ethnicity or anything. So Juanetta maybe seems more likely. So that was in 1934. And then two years later, in 1936, they have a son who they name Leroy. So they have two living kids to, I don't want to say makeup, but, you know, to, you know, help them deal with the, this first sad stillbirth. But Things were not great. Uh, in October 1937, Leora and William get divorced. William is actually granted temporary custody of the children with a more formal ruling to come after six months. And so with her divorce, Leora needs a job. And her father, Charles, knows a man named Hugh Wilson. And Hugh Wilson can help her find a job and help her find a place to live. So Hugh picks her up in Duchesne and drives her to Salt Lake City. So, Hugh's going to be a very important character. So, here's a little bit about him. He was born in March 1896 in Utah to George A. and Esther Wilson, and he was about halfway in between. He was sort of the direct middle child of nine kids, so he had four older siblings and four younger siblings. He had one younger sister who died soon after her birth, but the rest lived into adulthood. Hugh volunteered to serve in the Army in January 1918, but he never served in foreign fields during World War I because he spent 12 months in two different training camps, and uh, the armistice was signed in November 1918. And so he married a woman named Blanche May Johnston on September 25, 1919, in Price, Utah. Their first son, Leland, was born in 1921, and then over the next 17 years, they have eight more kids. Reva, Ruby, Margie... June, Richard, Chloe, George, and Scott. So that is nine kids. Wow. A lot of a lot of kids. And he was a he worked as a farmer. So he picks her so George ends up picking up Leora in October nineteen thirty seven. And there's this really 
weird event about six months later, and it involves both Leora and Hugh. So in March 16, 1938, Leora is found severely beaten in a canyon outside of Salt Lake City. What? And while she, yeah, I, I had never heard this story before. It's not mentioned. This was a newspaper article, and I was just like, sorry, what's happening? This is very strange. So mm-hmm. while in the hospital... Leora tells police that she and Hugh Wilson and another couple actually drove up to City Creek Canyon, which is just north of Salt Lake City Center, that afternoon or early evening of that day. And so the details are kind of fuzzy, and that part of that is because the newspaper article that described the event from the Salt Lake Telegram was copied really badly, and several words are cut off from each column. But as far as I can make out this is maybe what happened. So Hugh says that he actually left Leora at the intersection of 7th West and 4th South Streets at about 6.30 p.m. that night of March 16th. And he had to make some what he called collections. I don't know if he was running errands, what he was doing, but he ended up coming back to pick her up at the same intersection at 9.30 when he found another woman holding her at about 150 feet from the intersection. The other couple that they claim they went out with was nowhere to be found. I have no idea who this couple is, why they were not with her, if they even drove up into the canyon with another couple. No idea. Leora had been beaten around her face and her body, and so first she was actually taken to a house a few blocks away at 360 West 6 South before they called an ambulance and she was taken to the hospital. She suffered injuries and bruises on her head, face, and right thigh, as well as scratches on her face. Now, Hugh Wilson, who lived at 360 West 6 South, which is the house that she was taken to, was actually arrested and he was kept under investigation for the attack. But it seemed as if Lior tried to make it clear that it was not him who had done it. In the same newspaper article from the Salt Lake Telegraph, it detailed that another young woman, a 19-year-old, was also attacked that night at 845 near 7th East, which, if you remember, the intersection that he met her at was 7th West and 4th South. And so the way that Utah is set up for those, especially Salt Lake City, who don't know, it's actually set up like a grid system. And so the city center, I think, is like 100 south 100 east so basically streets west of sort of the temple area are going to be like first second third and then everything you know of course west east of the temple is going to be first second third east and so same sort of up and down so basically like or 10 blocks or so away from where Leora was found this girl is attacked she was so Leora was found at seventh west this other girl is attacked at seventh east so apparently the man snuck up behind the girl and threw an arm around her neck and forced her down to the pavement the girl was actually with her mother both of them screamed he ended up fleeing and the girl was able to give a description of the attacker he was described around 25 years old five feet nine inches tall and was dark with wavy hair Lior didn't, as far as I could tell, give a description of the attacker or really much of anything else, but it seems more likely that there was actually an attacker in downtown Salt Lake City that night rather than her having been attacked by Hugh. A newspaper article from the Uinta Basin Standard, which is the newspaper from Duchesne, on March 19th stated that Leora was, quote, lying near death, end quote. I don't think she was. I think that was a bit of an exaggeration. You know, she was beaten up. But obviously she pulled through. He was released from jail because they didn't have any evidence. Um, It doesn't seem like the attacker was ever found. So, yeah, very weird 
situation. Yeah. I don't. I know. I don't know what happened. And it, the the article wasn't clear. It was the only article I could find about it. So kind of a weird situation. That was in uh, March 1938. So in June 1938, kicking her while she's down, William is granted full custody of Winetta and Leroy as Leora was declared an unfit mother as she, quote, has not provided a home for them and was deemed morally unfit to have custody of them. A modification of the decree provides that the mother may visit the children at reasonable hours, end quote. And she might have been labeled as morally unfit because of her relationship with Hugh Wilson and the family. And so between 1938 and 1940, the Wilson family ended up moving from Salt Lake City, Utah to Pocatello, Idaho, of course, where Hugh owns his own farm. Now, in the 1940 census, the Wilson family are listed as living in Pocatello. And there's one other person living with them, Leona, who's listed as Lena Eliason. She describes herself as widowed, working as a salesman, and it looks like her income went to the Wilson family. So you might be asking, what would Leona Eliason be doing living with Hugh and Blanche Wilson and their nine children? That's a very good question, but let's pause here and do a little bit of Pocatello history real quick. I've talked about Pocatello a lot before. You know, I sort of give a general history of Pocatello in season two, episode nine with Rebecca Chacon. And then I also talk about the African-American populations of Pocatello in season three, episode four, Josephine Fort, and this last uh, just two or three episodes ago with Edna Mae Hester. So Pocatello was called the gateway to the Northwest as a crossroads for trappers and gold miners as well as pioneers on the Oregon and California trails. Pocatello saw a land rush when the government ceded parcels of land that had once been part of the Fort Hall Reservation. The railroad helped the city become a major transportation hub and remains a major employer in the city to this day. And so I won't go into any of that again. So instead, I want to talk about another form of transportation as it applies to an important part of Pocatello's history, flying. The first flight in Idaho actually happened in Lewiston on October 13th, 1910. And so over the next 20 years, flights in Idaho were usually pilots who landed sort of in random fields with mail and stuff like that. And Pocatello especially, there were a lot of pilots who just landed in fields because there wasn't an official landing place or, of course, airmail with the Postal Service. And that actually airmail started in 1928. So in 1920, a pilot and a businessman named Hugh Barker flew into Pocatello from Gooding and landed in the field of J. Rob Brady, who was the son of James H. Brady, a U.S. senator from 1913 to 1918. This quote is from the article by Justin Smith in the Idaho State Journal. Quote, Baker was not only a pilot, but also a businessman and knew how to leverage the novelty of flying. His trip was as much showmanship as business, and he flew to impress. The day after his arrival, he put on an impromptu air show over the city doing spectacular stunts. In the midst of the flight, he and his passengers dumped leaflets over the city promoting an automobile show held in Pocatello. End quote. Then, in 1928, the city of Pocatello purchased land for an airfield. And so a year later, in 1929, they dedicated the McDougal Airfield, and it was named after Harry Owens McDougal, who was Idaho's only World War I ace. He actually survived 42 bombing missions in Europe. And sadly, McDougal died after crashing during an air show in Pocatello in 1928. If that's your calling, what, right. what a way to go out. Like, I know. Geez. I know. I mean, you survived 42 bombing missions in Europe during World War One, and then you crash in Pocatello, Idaho. But, you know, I think he died 
in his home state doing what he loved. So yes, there is sort of not really a better way to go. McDougal Airfield remained Pocatello's main airport through 1951 when another institution, which was more up to date, began being used. And it used to actually be an Army Air Force base. So a little bit about the Army Air Force base, because as we know, in the 1940s, Europe is engrossed in World War II, and the U.S. did not get involved until December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. So the first major influx of American troops arrived in Britain on January 26, 1942. Most American troops actually fought in the Pacific Theater. The troops fought to defend Pacific Islands, especially Corregidor, which was the last Allied stronghold in the Philippines. On May 6, 1942, U.S. Lieutenant Jonathan Wainwright surrendered all U.S. troops in the Philippines to the Japanese due to constant artillery shelling and aerial bombardment attacks and the poor physical conditions of the troops. All 11,500 surviving Allied troops were evacuated to a prison stockade in Manila, and General Wainwright was taken as a prisoner of war. In June 1942, uh, it was the Battle of Midway, where the American Navy surprised the Japanese Navy and sank 254 aircraft and boats, a battle that the Allies won. And so there's, you know, sort of a lot going on in this Pacific theater, and especially since, uh, you know, there's an entire ocean the Navy is really important, and air vehicles, aircraft on those carriers are equally important. So during World War II, lots of regional army bases were constructed for the massive amounts of recruits and troops that needed to be trained to be sent to two different fronts. And so the Pocatello Army Air Base was built in 1942, about two miles east of McDougal, which had been, of course, in operation since 1929. And so the purpose of this Pocatello Air Base was for heavy bomber training for B-17 and B-24 aircraft as well as P-39 and P-47 fighter pursuit pilots. Pocatello's challenging and constant changing wind conditions made it an ideal place for new bombers and bombardiers to practice. And so there were actually four bombing ranges around the base. The most heavily used were the lava fields north of the city. Pocatello's army base, along with a naval gun plant built in the area, brought a significant boost to the economy as well as to the population. And so it's estimated that about 40,000 young men were trained at the Pocatello Army Air Base. On the air base, there was an officer's club as well as a club for non-commissioned officers, a post exchange, which is a military retail store. They had a movie theater, a library, and then lots of sort of different activities for soldiers on the base to to do. And that information is from Erico Jordan's article in the Idaho State Journal. Between 1942 and 1945, Pocatello Air Base is going strong, and then military training activities were discontinued in January 1945, with World War II officially ending in September 1945. You know, VE Day, the Victory in Europe Day, was May 1945, and Victory Over Japan Day was August 1945. So between 45 and 49, the airport was used for private aircraft operations, and then Uh, February 20th, 1949, the airfield was given to the city of Pocatello. And two years later, in 1951, it opened as the Pocatello Municipal Airport, which it remains to this day. So that's just a little bit about sort of the Pocatello airfield and flying in Pocatello. Let's get back to Leona. So it's 1940. So uh, the U.S. is not quite involved in World War II, but Europe is. Leona and Hugh and Blanche Wilson and their nine kids are living in Pocatello. So again, you're probably asking, what is the relationship between these three adults? Well, it might be more than just friends. 
According to the Bannock County Prosecuting Attorney and the 5th Judicial District Judge, Leon Leora not only lived in the house, but oftentimes slept in Hugh's bed with Hugh. Um, and perhaps it was not just with Hugh, because the prosecuting attorney said, quote, some testimony indicated that the two women and Wilson at times slept together, end quote. Uh. Weird. <laughs> there came a point where some of the oldest Wilson kids, in the words of Twisted Sister, were not going to take it anymore. Um <laughs> Lior had been living with the Wilsons for about five years, and the oldest son, Leland, who was 21 at the time, and the second daughter, Ruby, who was 15, they, quote, staged a rebellion, end quote, and went to the authorities with the charges of adultery in mid-December 1941, which is right after the U.S. declared war on Japan and entered World War II. So Lior and Hugh are charged with adultery and sentenced to one year at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Because this was their first offense, and perhaps because of this particular charge, their sentence was commuted to three months in the Bannock County Jail. And because they were arrested in uh, mid-December and then, you know, had to sort of sit uh, and get sentencing, they were actually given a delayed start of their sentences until after the Christmas holiday. And so they were released on their own recognizance and said, you can be released for Christmas, but you have to come back and serve your three months. Well, turns out that Hugh and Leora may have really begun to develop feelings for each other, and instead of waiting around to serve only three months in the Bannock County Jail, they decided to flee to Reno, Nevada as soon as they were released from court custody. Oh, no. So why Reno, you might be asking? Well, probably because Reno had some of the easiest divorce laws in the country at the time, and so I think it's really hard for those of us to imagine that divorce, you know, wasn't always so easy to get. And by the 1940s, it's getting a lot easier. Like the 19th century, it was pretty tough to get. Getting a divorce was considered against public interest, unless there was a a legitimate reason such as abandonment, cruelty, or ironically, adultery. But it was up to judges in individual states. So even if someone cited one of the aforementioned reasons, a judge could still decide it was not enough of a reason for a divorce. And so by the 1940s, we're starting to see that shift a little bit. But Reno especially, they had some of the most lax divorce laws in the country, and this earned them the nickname the divorce capital of the world. And so... If you are able to get a divorce, normally you have to be a resident of the state for like at least a year, if not more. Again, this all depends on the state. But in Reno, you only needed six months of a Nevada residency, and then the courts would accept uncorroborated grounds for divorce. You didn't have to bring up, you know, the other party. And so most people, usually women who were getting a divorce in Reno, would cite extreme cruelty and the divorce would just be granted. So... It's possible that Leora and Hugh were hoping to go down to Reno and live under different names for six months until Hugh got a divorce and then the two of them could get married. I don't know that for sure. They didn't question them about why they went. It just seems like Reno is too specific of a place to just like randomly go get away from authorities. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's sort of my assumption. So, because of their flight, authorities had to bring them back to the state, and their commutated sentences were revoked, and their one-year sentence for adultery was reinstated, and Leora L. Eliason and Hugh Wilson entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on January 21st, 1942. So her intake, she pleaded guilty. She was 28 years old, sentenced one year date received January 21st, 1942, born in Nebraska. Her occupation she listed as domestic works. She was five feet even 
and weighed 154 pounds. No complexion is listed, and she had brown hair and hazel eyes. And then um, her Bertillion is pretty normal, but there is one interesting thing that, again, is not explained. For some reason, there were a lot of interesting things in Leora's file that just, like, weren't explained. So she's got some moles. Interestingly, on her, the, like, printed out drawing, they actually drew hair on the top of the head to like show that she was a female and had hair because female is written next to the drawing of the hair. She had a vaccination scar. She had an operation scar on her stomach. And then her fingertip of her middle finger was off at the first joint. Like she like just didn't have that particular part of her finger. I don't know why that is not explained at all. Just says that it's off at the first joint. So when Lior entered the Idaho State Penitentiary, there were only two other women in the women's ward. As far as I could tell, they were Alta Hazeltine, who was in for robbery, and Mrs. Grace Fox, who was in for forgery. She would remain one of only three inmates in the women's ward during her stay. Per usual, not much is known. And I'm not sure she would have done much anyway, because her prison in time was incredibly short. So her case was actually brought before Governor Chase A. Clark and, quote, it was deemed to the best interests of justice and mercy to grant to the said Leora Eliason a reprieve by executive order to enable her to accept employment and contribute to the support of her children, end quote. So she was released on March 6, 1942. The conditions of her reprieve were that she abstained from alcohol until the expiration of her sentence, as well as to write or to appear to the warden in person every 30 days, starting on December 21st, 1942, for one year until December 21st, 1943. Which is interesting. She was let out in March. She didn't have to start reporting until December. But December is when she was sentenced. So, I don't know. So, anyway, she spent one month and 13 days in prison. One this isn't, month? Yeah. What? This isn't wow. the uh, the shortest sentence that we have in the women's ward, but it is certainly one of the shortest. Hugh actually is given a similar reprieve from his sentence as well. So she's released, and normally when a couple enters the prison for adultery, they often break up after their release, but this is not the case with Hugh and Leora. In fact, Hugh and Blanche got divorced, and on June 7th, 1945, it took three years for the divorce to go through, but Hugh and Leora get married in American Falls, Idaho. I couldn't find a record to corroborate this, an obituary from the Salt Lake Tribune is the only source that I could find with this date. But, you know, they did get married, and Leora did become a stepmother to Hugh's nine kids. And as far as I could tell, they had one child together, a daughter named Geraldine, who was born around 1947. I think the family remained in Pocatello for a while, but eventually moved to Utah when Geraldine was still pretty young. I found an interesting article from the Uinta Basin Standard from March 26, 1953. So this is, the article says, quote, Mrs. Leora Wilson and daughter Geraldine of Pocatello, Idaho, were guests of Mrs. Roy Eliason, um, which would have been her sister, and Mrs. Laura Mailer, her twin sister. So interestingly, this is saying that that Mary and her sister Gertrude were twins, but I don't think that that's true. So back to the article, quote, When she returned Monday, she took her father, Charles Finsky, back with her. He intends to stay for his birthday April 7th before coming back home, end quote. There were a few of these sort of like, she went to Duchesne to visit whoever, 
but that's just sort of a sample of what there were three or four of those. The family moved to Salt Lake City in 19, uh, in about 1960, probably to be closer to family. And as far as I could tell, Leora and Hugh were practicing LDS members. And so Hugh and Leora Wilson were married for 20 more years before Leora died on June 19, 1965, in her home in Salt Lake City. There are conflicting accounts about what she died from. The Idaho State Journal from Pocatello says it was because of a long illness, but the Salt Lake Tribune says it was because of natural causes. As she was only 52 years old at the time of her death, it seems more likely that it was due to an illness rather than natural causes, but I couldn't find any death record to state what that would have been. She was survived by her husband, her 12 kids, or her three kids and nine stepkids, and 25 grandchildren. Uh, She was buried in the Salt Lake City Cemetery, and the last little bit that I found was that Hugh actually would go on to marry again in 1969 before his own death in 1972. And so that is the story of number 6483, Leora Eliason. Love triangle. I know. It's lucky that it didn't turn into kind of a reverse Fred Bond situation sort of Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I wish I knew more about their little dynamic, because clearly, you know, Hugh's wife was in on it for a little bit. <laughs> like, you don't have a a newly divorced woman, like, living and moving with you unless you know something is going on. Yeah. But yeah, kind of, kind of an interesting little life. And again, that weird, like, that she got attacked in 1938. Yeah. So strange. But yeah. Man, do you know, like, plural marriage, of course... Mm-hmm an old facet of Mm -hmm. the LDS faith. But, Mm -hmm. you know, at this time, it's like long out of tradition, Mm -hmm. right? Except for like Mm -hmm. extreme, kind of like today, where it's just like extreme FLDS. Yeah, the the fundamentalists. Yeah. Just to give you an idea. So the early church practiced it from about the 1850s. Then a a lot of the, the Mormon pioneers moved west, settled in Utah. They were given territorial status in, I think, the 1860s. Around... I want to say, I want to say it's around the 1890s, they were trying to get statehood. And basically, the the US government said, you will not get statehood status until you outlaw polygamy, like you just cannot belong to the country and practice polygamy. And so 1890, the president of the church came out and outlawed that, you know, and I would think that if it was a, a case of polygamy, rather than like sort of I don't whatever this weird love triangle situation was that the kids would have known about it and understood it they would have been taught that as part of sort of their faith and so they wouldn't have sort of gone to the authorities with this adultery charge well that's super interesting and wow man relationships can get complicated (laughs) yes they can In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. If you'd like to know more about the Idaho State Historical Society, 
and other historical sites, please visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for Sky or I, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com. I hear that you also have a man who might have had some uh, some complicated relationships this week. Oh, boy. Oh, yes. boy. <laughs> so mine actually kind of parallels yours with the Nebraska connection, which I thought, oh. yeah, I, I actually mentioned a lot of the same names here. In just Hey. So I am covering Edward E. Gillespie, number 2911. My sources are the Idaho Daily Statesman, Library of Congress Chronicling America, newspapers.com, of course, as I said, was invaluable, but also I have over 150 pages of newspaper documents, Uh, ancestry.com, Idaho State Archives court transcripts, and I have about 350 pages of those, criminal jury instructions from the state of Idaho Judicial Branch Supreme Court website, which is isc.idaho.gov, Wikipedia articles on John Milton Thayer, Wilkins Micawber, The Birth of a Nation, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, William Bora, and William McKinley. And that was just kind of to refresh my memory on some of these. Uh, what are we talking about, Birth of, of a Nation, for my friend? Oh, we'll oh get boy. To it. <laughs> oh, boy. I, I hope. Have you studied Birth of the Nation at, um, at all? I've, yeah, I've had to watch it a couple times. I've actually never oh, watched no. it all the way through because it's so tough. It's so long and yeah. it's just so tough to watch. Um, and then we yeah. did uh, read a book on it in my progressive era class. And it was about the influence that the birth of a nation had and sort of the second rise of the KKK and things like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we will get to that. Ooh. Mm. <laughs> so Edward E. Gillespie. And he actually went by E.E. E. Gillespie throughout his life. But I'm going to call him Edward throughout this, just because it's easier to say than E.E. He was born in Omaha, Nebraska on March 24, 1868, to John and Sarah Gillespie. He had an older brother named Harry, older sisters Lana and Emma, and younger sisters Emma and Lily. So he was one of two boys out of six total children. Edward's father, John, grew up in Ohio and was a carpenter and school teacher. And the Gillespie family actually moved to Nebraska. And after the outbreak of the Civil War, John enlisted and served under Union General John Milton Thayer's 1st Nebraska Regiment as a sergeant. This is, of course, in the Union Army. The Nebraska Regiment fought battles in the Western Theater of the Civil War, which was important in spreading the Confederate Army thin and helping lead to the Union's victory. Civil War buffs will probably recognize the battles listed in John's obituary. He fought at Fort Henry, Fort Donelson, Shiloh, and Corinth. Quote, finishing his military career in central Nebraska in a campaign against the Indians. Returning to Brownsville as lieutenant, he was soon chosen auditor of the territory. It was while holding this office that he was called upon to do the important work of locating a new capital, erecting the state buildings, and removing the state offices here. This was a work of some difficulty, and the recital of the story is full of interest, end quote. I will not recite that story to you, though. John retired from the office as auditor of Nebraska in 1873, when Edward was actually six years old, and uh, he actually became the secretary to the Nebraska Stockyards Company. Sarah Gillespie, his mother, died in 1896, and John passed away in December of 1897. So the family, it was really well-connected in Nebraska and in the national politics of the day, and Edward would actually ride these coattails. 
In the 1880s, Edward was in high school in Lincoln, Nebraska, and a write-up appeared in the Lincoln Journal Star on March 27, 1886, titled A Gay Gathering. Quote, Richard's block was the scene of unusual gaiety last evening. The building resounded with the merry laughter of joyous couples as they promenaded down the spacious halls on the fourth floor. The real cause of this hilarity and gathering was to celebrate the 18th birthday of Mr. Edward E. Gillespie. The young folks had come to have a good time, and a passer by the building would certainly have thought their anticipations were realized, for a more happy gathering could not have been found in the city. About 25 young ladies and gentlemen were present, composed mostly of this year's graduating high school class to which the host belongs. The presents were numerous and expensive and testify the esteem in which the young gentleman is held by his comrades, end quote. And write-ups like these would actually follow Edward throughout his life. I do want to say the title is a bit foreshadowing. (laughs) Is that an uncouth (laughs) joke to make? (laughs) Ah, yes. So he was actually elected as the president of the Alumni Association. And upon graduating, he would actually carry the torch for both his high school and college for the rest of his life. And you will see that here in a moment. In 1889, an article appeared in which Edward was hosting a Charles Dickens Club dress-up party. (laughs) Sign me up. What? (laughs) Yeah. The journalist who showed up said, quote, Many of the young people appeared ridiculously absurd and were the target of much innocent mirth. To say that some of the characters represented were ludicrous to the extreme would, to some degree, represent their appearance. The first part of the evening was spent in promenades, at which time Dickens himself would have been astonished at the realism of the characters, end quote. And the journalists, like, listed all of the characters who were played, and Edward played Wilkins Micawber, who was a clerk in Dickens' novel David Copperfield. Have you read that? I haven't, actually. I've, I've, I haven't I either. I've never, I don't think I've ever read Charles Dickens. Like, actually, I yeah. mean... Is Dickens the one who does um, the Christmas, ta- the ghost one? Uh-huh. <laughs> Whatever that yeah. one is called. Yeah, yeah so I mean, I know tale? that story. Yeah. Christmas story. Yeah, so I know the story, but I never, I've never, i never read it. That's, I think, pretty much the extent of my <laughs> reading of him. So I had to look up who Macabre was, and he was like this very optimistic fella, and there's actually an adjective about you know, about his name, Macabre-ish, due to his constant belief that something will turn up, no matter how much trouble he found himself in with debt collectors and all of his issues. Edward, you know, he wouldn't really have to worry about any of that throughout his life. He was pretty well off. Uh, He spent his time at parties and in theaters and even performing a Civil War reenactment play and minstrel show um, while in college. He's a total nerd. He's a total nerd. Yeah. He's, like, he's kind of a nerd and a theater guy. and I love yeah. it. <laughs> and he's loved. He's like beloved in the community. Uh, so he starts to attend the Nebraska State University. And in the evenings, he actually coached high school students in oration. And uh, I, I actually read about some of these competitions. And the students were giving these pretty progressive presentations on subjects like the education of the Negro, which was about changing Southern mentality and providing an education to former slaves. Another one was called A Humanist, which was a eulogy of the life of Helen Hunt Jackson, who was a poet and author who was an activist for better treatment of Native Americans. And this would be something that Gillespie would follow throughout his life. And these were pretty, you know, liberal ideals for the time. 
Besides college and teaching oration, he also volunteered with the local military academy and helped put on dances and other events for the cadets. And upon graduation from college, journalists tried to pin down where the students would go, and referring to Edward, they wrote, quote, E. E. Gillespie remains in Lincoln. He has not come to a decision regarding the business or profession he will adopt. One who should guess the law might not be far in error. Mr. Gillespie may take an eastern trip this summer, end quote. And he would actually end up doing that. But before he left, he established the Sons of Nebraska, a fraternal club made up of men proud of their state. And I think it's important that we start our own Idaho fraternal group. Maybe call it the Potato Boys. Um, so if you're interested, I'll send you a potato and get it going. So basically, that's, that's what Edward a singular does. solitary potato. <laughs> also, I mean... I but I want to be part of this group too. We have to come up with like a club that's not gender specific. Oh man, I don't know, Sky. <laughs> Fine, I don't want to be a, in your a potato boy. boys club anyway. We can we can do a little subsidiary potato girl club. Yeah, I'll yeah yeah uh, yeah, and it'll be like a like one of those uh, like daughters of the Nile or whatever. That's like the, yeah exactly the women's. Yeah. I, I gotta come up with something better than potato girls. I'll come up with something good. <laughs> So, girls, we'll create a we're going to be in the yeah. cooler club. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, you probably will be. <laughs> so, Edward, he starts this little fraternal club, and then he gets a job as a Senate committee clerk. And the senators that he worked for actually served on the committee on asylums, which meant Edward was sent to inspect the asylums throughout Nebraska and other uh, surrounding states. In 1896, he began his own journalistic career as a Washington correspondent and wrote articles about what was happening in Washington, D.C. that affected Nebraska. In his first correspondence, he told readers about newly elected Republican Senator John Mellon Thurston, who made his maiden speech in the Senate, quote, And I am free to confess that all of my expectations were fully realized. While a senator spoke but for a couple of minutes, yet the attention showed him by the Senate and gallery testifies to the belief that Nebraska's junior senator will be a moving force in that body. Likewise, a strong friend of the old soldiers in all pension legislation. End quote. He ends this first article by describing in detail Mrs. Thurston and other wives of the legislators' clothing and garments. Quote, Mrs. Senator Villas wore a gown of dahlia-colored cloth trimmed elaborately with furs and embroidery with an elegant vest and neck garniture of exquisite white lace. Mrs. Senator Thurston, a rose-red and silver brocaded satin trimmed with green velvet and point lace, end quote. So it seems like he took more notes at the party that followed the Senate than, than actually at the Senate. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, Readers at that time, they knew who these folks were, and they would eat this up. You know, they would know them from the social sections in newspapers. His later correspondence, they were actually more serious and really well-written, and they had the sense of wit and humor to them that would have brought readers back to his column regularly. He focused on large issues like the support of veterans, prohibition, which he didn't appear to support, Native American relations and improvement on those relations, international relations, 
elections, the 1897 battle for the position as United States Marshal in Nebraska, the tension that led to the Spanish-American War and the American invasion of Cuba in 1898, the annexation of Hawaii as a United States territory, and the intricate political dealings going on in Washington as the Nebraska senators fought hard for their constituents. I mean, these articles were fascinating and documented basically all the major themes that would carry over into the 20th century. I've talked about kind of, you know, Charles Phelps is like this Forrest Gump character who's just kind of there amidst all these interactions, these encounters. But Gillespie was kind of aware of these historical, these like major historical events that were going on around him. And he, you know, he's published in newspapers documenting these cases, which is just amazing. But also, wow, I have hundreds of pages of (laughs) his writing. So he's clearly a well-educated man, and his reputation was so good that on April 6th, 1897, the Lincoln Evening Call wrote, E.E. Gillespie, the Call's Washington correspondent, arrived from the national seat of government yesterday and today took his place in one of the polling booths while he went through the motions of making a few straight Republican exes, end quote. And then the next day, to nobody's apparent surprise, Republicans filled every seat in Lincoln. The mayor even noted, quote, he felt that it was something to be a candidate when E.E. Gillespie came up and said that he had come all the way from Washington to cast his vote for him, end quote. Edward Hobnob with everybody, including the president at that time, William McKinley. We'll get to that in a little bit. The most revealing look at Edward came from a newspaper article from January 30th, 1898 in the Lincoln Evening Call that was a quote from a prominent Omaha businessman says, quote, I never met Mr. Gillespie until I was introduced to him by Congressman Mercer. After he had transacted some important business with Mercer and he had been sent hurriedly over to the Senate, Congressman Mercer stopped long enough to say, there is one of the most invincible fellows I ever saw. He is the greatest news gatherer at the Capitol and he knows more of Washington people than any other one man. I found that he was at work collecting and classifying and delivering to the various congressmen blueprints of the old Lincoln building and other important information concerning the great necessity for securing the passage of Senator Allen's bill providing for a million-dollar building at Lincoln. I confess, after I knew him, I was charmed by his freshness, end quote. He's just as important as some of these senators. He's going around with these important documents and doing all this really amazing work, but also getting the inside scoop on all these politicians as well. In the 1900 census, Edward listed his occupation as office work and uh, listed that he lived with his sisters Emma and Lillian and her husband. Part of Edward's office work included crossing paths with Theodore Roosevelt on his whistle-stop campaign in 1900. During the early summer of 1900, Teddy Roosevelt was touring through as the nominee of vice president, and Edward met up with his party in the Indian country in Oklahoma. At least 50,000 people arrived to see the 41-year-old future president of the United States as he toured the country on horseback. Gillespie wrote a letter about the experience for the newspaper. Quote, the city, he says, looked as if a street fair was in progress. The free Western spirit prevailed. Mr. Gillespie says he has caught the Rough Rider fever and he will, for the next few weeks, accompany a government party into Oklahoma. He is with a portion of the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs, of which Senator Thurston of Nebraska is a chairman, end quote. Two months later, in September 1900, the Lincoln Journal Star stated, quote, E.E. Gillespie, Senator Thurston's right-hand bower when in Washington, returned last evening from a trip through the Indian Territory. 
He came direct from Chickasaw, which point he reached by riding 50 miles overland. During the last three months, he has covered 3,000 miles on horseback, visiting the wildest parts of the territory, where tarantulas, poisonous snakes, wild cats, panthers, and varmints of all kinds flourish in great numbers. He will remain in Lincoln until after election and recuperate, end quote. And you know what? I didn't see him in any newspapers until May of 1901, when he was appointed messenger for Senator Dietrich of Nebraska and given a $1,400 yearly salary, which is about $40,000 in today's money. In 1902, he had one of the funniest write-ups titled, How Nebraskans Came to Be Called Bug Eaters. (laughs) This one made me chuckle. Quote, we are trying very hard to change the title by which natives of Nebraska are known. As you probably know, the people who are fortunate to have been born in our state are called bug eaters. The new title we are trying to assume is tree planters. By the way, tree planters. Everyone is a tree planter. (laughs) Yeah. We aren't eating bugs. Yeah. By the way, continued Mr. Gillespie, did you ever hear how we got that title? That's a good story. Of course, you know we had a terrible plague of grasshoppers in Nebraska in the 70s. This is the 1870s, of course. They ate up everything from the cattle to rail fences, and that's no dream either. A correspondent of an eastern paper was touring the west and happened across the state during the plague. He saw nothing but grasshoppers and concluded the people must live on them. In writing back to his paper, he referred to the natives as bug eaters and bug eaters we have been ever since, end quote. And he continued the article basically talking about being a child at the time in the 70s and having to survive off of like dried corn. And, you know, they were even using corn to heat the house, like little coal briquettes. And he got sick of corn. He's like, I, to this day, I just cannot handle corn. But he said that the grasshoppers were, quote, so thick that when they passed over a community, it seemed like a total eclipse of the sun, end quote. He remembers hearing of cattle actually being attacked and killed by these swarms. And he ended the whole thing by saying, quote, That was a good while ago. We have driven out all of the grasshoppers now into the neighboring states. Just at present, Nebraska is an agricultural state and the greatest member of the union, end quote. <laughs> and he would actually hold on to this opinion until he visited Idaho. So, Sorry, I do have a oh, quick question. Yes. Do you know when... Nebraska became known as like the corn huskers. I don't. Do you? It actually comes from the University of Nebraska sports teams. So before 1900, this so this is from huskers.com. This is like the official like corn huskers blog. So before 1900, Nebraska football teams were known by such names as the Old Gold Knights, Antelopes, Rattlesnake Boys, and the Bug Eaters. <laughs> um <laughs> And so the Bug Eaters was its most popular nickname, and they did really well. They were winning with that name. And so then it says, after its first losing season in a decade, it must have seemed only fitting that Nebraska move in a new direction. And Lincoln sports writer (laughs) Charles S. Sherman, who was to gain national renown as the sports editor of the Lincoln Star and help originate the Associated Press poll, provided the nickname that has gained fame for a century. Sherman, tired of referring to the Nebraska teams with such an unglamorous term as Bug Eaters, Iowa had, from time to time, been called the Cornhuskers, and the name appealed to Sherman. Iowa partisans seemed to prefer Hawkeyes, so Sherman started referring to the Nebraska team as the Cornhuskers, and the 1900 team was the first to bear that label. Of course, the name caught on and became the Nebraska byword, eventually becoming the official nickname for the state. That is so neat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, in Edwards' ilk, you know, coming up as newspaper men coming up with... 
this nickname. I bet that they rubbed shoulders. They probably knew mm, each other. Probably. That's so funny. Man, this guy had so many connections. It's wild. Seriously. <laughs> In 1903, Edward and his partner G.C. Shedd came to Idaho as the dams were being constructed and canals were being dug in the Twin Falls area that we've actually talked about on previous episodes. And he came with money and a drive to invest in this newly developing land. By the fall of 1905, he had fallen in love with the state, and he wrote a letter to the Nebraska State Journal on October 29th, 1905, and said, quote, the thousands of Nebraskans who hurried across Wyoming and Idaho to visit the Portland Exposition this summer have formed a very erroneous impression of this region, especially Idaho, by judging the country from the car window standpoint. To be sure, when one rides for hours viewing the vast stretches of sagebrush on both sides, one is apt to wonder if there could possibly be a bright oasis in these unpromising surroundings. Had I not known to the contrary, I also would have been disposed to judge accordingly. But after an extended tour over southern Idaho, I am convinced that this is destined to be the garden spot of the country. Already there is nestling in the valley traversed by the Boise River, a city modern in every respect, known in all the northwest as Boise the Beautiful. Unfortunately, as it appears, and so has proven to be, this city is located on a spur railroad off of a through line to the coast, but in spite of this serious handicap, it has doubled its population in the last five years. Had Boise been on the main line, it would today be as large, if not larger, than Salt Lake City, end quote. And then later in the letter, he actually says, quote, while Idaho is undergoing a great transformation through the storage of water and its diversion over its sagebrush plains, there are many natural spots hidden away within its borders that will charm the tourist. A scenery which rivals, if not excels, the beauties of California and Colorado suddenly unfolds itself after a long ride over sagebrush country, as in the case of the Great Shoshone Falls, some 75 miles south of Boise, on the Snake River. Unlike the Great Niagara Falls, the water comes rushing over huge boulders and against projecting rocks in a canyon some hundreds of feet below the surface, and then drops over 200 feet into a deeper canyon with a roar almost deafening. It certainly appeals more strongly to the Westerner than Niagara, as it is indicative of the Western spirit of push. Below these falls, there is, to my mind, the most beautiful spot in the United States, the Blue Lakes, end quote. Hmm. And... Shoshone Falls, they have been called the Niagara of the West. And you can actually see the falls on a live camera feed from the City of Twin Falls website, which is tfid.org. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Edward continued by talking about the hunting and fishing opportunities in the state, the wooded mountainous regions to the north, which he described as, quote, remarkably beautiful, and then moves on to talk about politics. Quote, Idaho today is securely anchored in the Republican column, end quote. And he actually attributes this to settlers from Nebraska, Iowa, and Kansas that had entered the state. He notes that the people of Idaho supported two of President Roosevelt's square deal ideals to protect consumers and control corporations, but not really the land conservation. Quote, opposition is not to the principle but to the operation, today about one-third of Idaho has been placed into forest reserves without regard to its location or settlement with the sole idea of preserving the timber and conversion of the waters for irrigation purposes, end quote. And, you know, this is still to this day about the same. According to the Idaho Forest Products Commission website, Idaho has about 21.5 million acres of forest land. 
63.8% of the state is protected federal land, and 14% of the state is protected wilderness, which means it's close to like everything, motor vehicles, mining, mm-hmm. timber harvesting, and anything that would interfere with the land. I mean, if you haven't explored some of it, go do it. I, I'm in the middle of planning some summer trips with my wife to explore some of these beautiful wildernesses here in Idaho. And this is the uh, the jokes from Parks and Rec when he says it's uh, Ben and he's talking about like cutting budgets and he's like, Idaho had to cut its its budget by 80% and Idaho is basically one giant park. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love this state. <laughs> but But the fear was that like, the land that was allowed for timber had all been gobbled up by these companies. And so they had all the wealth so that as soon as any of this land opened up, they would be the only ones who could afford to purchase this extra timber land. So it was kind of unfair to the population. But fortunately, you know, we've, we've kept so much of it preserved. So Edward was hooked. I mean, he loved this land. He purchased land throughout the state, including Kimberly, Idaho, near Twin Falls, where he basically awaited the development of the canals. He bought some land in Long Valley, just south of Cascade, which the Idaho Northern Railway would eventually cut right through his property. And he bought some ranches here in Boise. And that didn't stop him from being the liaison when Nebraskan delegates and college clubs like University of Nebraska Glee and Mandolin Club planned their visits to Boise. And he was actually going to host this little mandolin club, which was made up of 48 young men who were going to perform in Boise after their visit to San Francisco in the spring of 1906. But the trip was canceled after the devastating earthquake in San Francisco that year that destroyed much of that city. So this wouldn't be his only opportunity to lead these groups around. So over the next year, Edward began to dabble back and forth into politics, and he served as a delegate at the State Republican Convention at Pocatello in 1907. He noted, quote, In the last campaign, we had a law and order, made-to-order issue to save the scalp of the delectable crew who have about swamped the Republican Party with their boss rule, which was perpetrated at the Pocatello Convention. I was an insurgent at the Pocatello Convention. I came down with a Gooding delegation, but I was not bound to support Gooding, and I did not either in the convention or the polls, end quote. And so this law and order, made-to-order issue he's referring to is the Big Bill Haywood trial, which we will discuss in detail when we cover Harry Orchard on a future episode. Being a journalist himself, I bet he was right up on this trial as it was going on. He wrote a letter to the Boise Citizen in November 1909 where he talks about all the development going on in town, like the Hawaii Hotel, quote, is now up to the sixth story and promises to be ready for occupancy February 22nd, 1910, Washington's birthday, and I hope to be present on the occasion and show my appreciation for Mr. Schubert's accomplishments, end quote. He then mentions like the Kerr Hardware Company, which was constructing a six-story building, and he says that's like one of the biggest in the West. The Moe Department Store, Adolf Schreiber's Undertaker Service, whose name I come across too often while researching here. Governor Brady, who you might remember from our Barney O'Neill episode and mentioned just a moment ago as he was a senator later on, as uh, Sky was talking about the airfield in Pocatello. And he hints at what was coming next as prohibition and temperance movements were strong in Idaho. Quote, the Democrats are not idle either. And after exploiting several candidates, it looks now as if they had finally located a Moses and his name ain't Alexander either. End quote. Of course, he's talking about future governor 
Moses Alexander, who <laughs> would joke, sign Prohibition the line. <laughs> he knew politics. He predicted most of these elections actually correctly in this little letter and, and gave a great preview of what Boise was going to look like in the 19-teens. It's pretty remarkable. And I promise we are getting close to his downfall. We're just about 10 years away. <laughs> so, 1911, the head of the University of Nebraska named Samuel Avery visited Boise, and Edward met him at the Boise train depot and led him to the Idenau Hotel for breakfast. They then toured the city and stopped off at the Oahu Hotel at noon, where Edward and other Nebraska alumni decorated the room with college pennants. They each had their picture taken and signed, and, and these were all taken back to the university. And I know that there's a Samuel Avery collection. I'm, I need to reach out to them to see if they have this photo of Gillespie with Avery. I did find a photo of Edward from July 1912, and he staged with a, a car packed with six men from different government agencies touring Coeur d'Alene. A week later, however, he charged that the soldier's home in Idaho was unsanitary. This upset Governor Hawley, who gathered up the Soldiers' Home Committee and went directly there to do a surprise inspection. And they said other than normal wear and tear, it was perfectly sanitary, but they would invest into new linoleum and other minor changes. This would be kind of the first time I saw Edward rubbing members of the Idaho politics the wrong way. Then came the anti-Bora men. The Idaho Republican League was established in early 1912, and was led by General George H. Roberts, quote, an avowed political enemy of Senator William E. Bora, end quote, and who was put in this position by Edward Gillespie, who, quote, disrupted the prearranged program, end quote, and actually put Roberts in the saddle. They had actually planned to put another man in, but Gillespie basically turned the whole thing upside down and made sure that uh, this George Roberts would be the head. So William Bora, he was this progressive Republican, and he actually didn't support the re-election of Republican William Howard Taft, who he felt didn't share true Republican values. Instead, Bora was supporting Teddy Roosevelt, who was running as an independent in the Progressive Party, also known as the Bull Moose Party at that time. The League supported William Howard Taft and felt that Bora was a fool to not support the sitting president. And you might remember that Taft actually lost this election to Woodrow Wilson, who would later lead the country through World War I. I mean, William Bora, he was extremely well-liked throughout the country, so this was quite an enemy for Edward to make. And it kind of became a, a little bit of a wedge between him and the William Bora Republican Party in the state. The next year, Edward became the chief aide and division correspondent in the Grand Army of the Republican, the GAR Sons of Veterans Division, which was an advocacy group to support veterans of the Union Army of the Civil War. And of course, I mean, his dad was quite a prominent individual in, in the Western fight. Edward helped at the soldier's home and led tours of the state house and the old soldier's home, and this position kept him right up in the ranks with the governor, as in August, he and newly elected Governor John Haynes went to a dinner at Camp Hayburn, put on by the soldiers, and dished out on their folding mess gear. The menu for them was entertaining. They had, quote, soup, chicken a la Boise water, relishes, spiced bullets and pickled blue notes, roast leg of lamb a la Gillespie, Vegetables, sliced canteens, creamed haversacks, and baked dust. Entrees, rolled blankets, and sore feet. And desserts, Governor Haynes' special. Drinks, ice trombones, and cute notes, end quote. 
It's just one of those like, what am I reading? This is the weirdest story. Yeah. But <laughs> I mean, Gillespie's just hobnobbing with the governor here. And who is he? Like, he's just kind of a part of this GAR group. So he spent a lot of time with the veterans and soldiers and these support clubs that surrounded them. And by 1914, he had become the patriotic instructor of the GAR and arranged programs to celebrate the 100-year anniversary of Francis Scott Key's penmanship of the Star-Spangled Banner, which was, of course, 1814 that he wrote the poem for that. January 29th, 1916 marks the 73rd anniversary of President William McKinley's birth, and the Soldiers' Home actually hosted an event in his memory, which included a speech by Edward, quote, who was in Washington as a newspaper correspondent and during the Spanish-American War served as assistant adjutant general assigned to the War Department. And he told a number of incidents of President McKinley that occurred in the telegraph room of the White House, where the newspaper men gathered every evening, and President McKinley was always present to receive the first dispatches from the front, end quote. So he was right there with McKinley, who's hearing what's going on during the Spanish-American War. Later that spring of 1916, Edward made the news again when he attempted to stop the Penny Theater from showing the film The Birth of a Nation. Edward said it should be quote, prohibited on the grounds that it was immoral, was an insult to the old soldiers and to the colored people of the country. The mayor informed the speakers that the matter had already been brought to the council's attention by the colored people, and a hearing would be given all objectors when the advance agent for the picture arrived, end quote. Good. Of course, yeah, the birth of a nation was essentially a retelling of the Civil War and the follow-up that depicted African-Americans who were actually white men in blackface in the film as unintelligent and, like, very sexualized and aggressive, and the Ku Klux Klan as these heroes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not only is it one of the most controversial films ever made, it pioneered many filming techniques and Mm -hmm. was, as you said, three hours long. It's, yeah. It's so like the content is so rough. It's uncomfortable to try to watch it, but like that is the hardest thing is that D. W. Griffiths was such a huge filmmaker, and he did really like interesting things with the filming itself. Like they, I think they this was more common in uh, in older silent films, but like they would tint the film strips to like sort of evoke a certain mood and so some Mm -hmm. uh you know when it was war it would be sort of red tinted to sort of give off the the anger and the volatility and the you know bloodiness of the battle and you know if it was green it would be a little bit more calm it would be outside um so he like pioneered these like really big you know filmic techniques that would be used in the future but it's 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 a rough film it's a rough film to watch like and it was like Ugh. a major box office it was huge. success. Huge. Yeah. And it got all this free publicity too. Like Yeah. 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 <sighs> yeah. So uh and you know, Gone with the Wind caused its own controversy about the Civil War. So I mean Civil oh, War yeah. epics were huge, especially in the time that it's you know, the Civil War there are people living who still remember it, you know, E being one of them and yeah. Interesting. Good for him. Right. Yeah. He he was just there representing himself and just saying, you know, this is this is not okay. Like, we shouldn't be showing it. And the council, they had a hearing. And despite several people trying to stop it from being shown, it is shown in, yeah. in the Penny Theater in downtown Boise. Well, and, and Woodrow Wilson actually had the film screened in the White House. Yeah. 
That was the That's first fun. film screen there, right? Yeah, it sure was. Wow. So, yeah. So that was quite quite the moment for uh, Mr. Gillespie. But again, he's not making a lot of friends by doing these kind of progressive things. And over the next couple of years, you know, he continued working with the soldiers at the soldiers' home and put on a haunted house on Halloween in 1916 and dressed up like a witch. All these interesting little things. But... When the United States entered World War One, April 6th, 1917, Edward decided, you know, I'm going to support the war effort. I've been supporting these soldiers. I've done all of this throughout my life, but I've never actually, like, gone there. Quote, Mr. Gillespie left three large ranches near Boise to enter war work, Mr. Ennis said, who was actually uh, Edward's kind of roommate in Boise. The ranches are to be sold and the proceeds invested in Liberty Bonds. He will go to the front in the service of the Salvation Army instead of the YMCA because of the recent ruling fixing the age limit for YMCA workers there at 45 years. Mr. Gillespie is 50 years old, end quote. So he worked for the Salvation Army and ended up being stationed in New York where he was working for publicity advertising for the War Camp Community Service. And I actually found a photo of him setting up the office with this big banner and all these soldiers uh, that said Idaho on it. And apparently during his trek across the country, these pro-German hecklers threw rocks at him as he traveled. They thought that he was going over to, to fight, which I thought was so interesting. It's in this Idaho Statesman article from March 26, 1918, that he's given the moniker the Man of Mystery. He seemed to be everywhere, know everybody, but nobody seemed to know anything about him or where he acquired his wealth. And this would become a problem in the coming years. He moved from New York City back to Washington, D.C. until July 1919 when he returned to Boise. So before we get into his crime, I think I have provided a little too much detail to paint a very clear picture of Edward E. Gillespie. He was extremely patriotic, he's well-connected, he's influential, he's wealthy, mysteriously, and everything was going for him. He's also a lifelong bachelor. He never seemed to have any romantic partners. In September 1919, a closed-door trial would begin. Edward was being tried for an assault case upon a young Navy man named Winfield Harold Cahill. Witnesses and visitors were excluded from the room during the hearing, and the newspapers didn't reveal what the assault was until October, when they revealed that he was being charged with the infamous crime against nature. This crime could lead to a sentence of not less than five years to life in prison. And this is a sex crime that requires the state to provide on a certain date in the state of Idaho, the defendant, quote, engaged in conduct consisting of the penetration, however slight, of the anal or oral openings of a person or animal and must be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. So the law is equating sex between two men with sex between a human and an animal, and it carried a minimum of five years and a maximum of life in prison. (sighs) serious crime and extremely hard time. So Gillespie pulled out everything he could to fight this. It turns out that even though nobody was allowed in the courtroom during the trial, we do have the transcripts for the trial available at the Idaho State Archives. So I ended up going through all of the court trial transcripts and there are over 300 pages of testimony and other documents. The trial began on September 15th, 1919. 
Winfield Harold Cahill was the victim in the case, and he took the stand and explained his work history. He was a machinist and had traveled all around the East Coast, basically just following work. He ended up coming to Butte, Montana, then pushing to Boise, Idaho, where he checked into the Mitchell Hotel in downtown Boise, where Edward Gillespie happened to be staying. They met on the first day and kind of chatted briefly. Unfortunately, Winfield got sick and went to St. Luke's Hospital where his tonsils were removed on August 20th, 1919. When he returned to the hotel, he was in poor shape, and when Edward saw him in the lobby, he offered to help him recover. And Edward and other hotel residents brought Winfield milk and other soft foods as he suffered from what he felt was a botched operation. During this time, Winfield claimed that Edward told him to get undressed and get into the bed. The prosecutor asked, quote, what then did he do, end quote. He said, then he started to play with my person, end quote. Winfield went into details. He claimed Edward touched him, then locked the door and undressed himself. He then climbed into bed with Winfield and, quote, put his arm around my neck and started loving me up as if I was a girl, end quote. Winfield then claimed that Edward went under the covers and performed oral sex on him. After he did this for a short while, he got out of the bed, laid across the other bed, and looked out the window for a while before getting dressed and leaving the room. Winfield said that he laid there for a while, quote, I was so weak and disgusted, end quote. He then told the lady across the hall what had happened. Edward's lawyer then questioned Winfield, asking who else he had seen and questioning him if he had been going with any girls and his history with venereal disease, where he admitted that he had gonorrhea in 1911 and uh, he had some connections with some thugs who were serving prison sentences in St. Paul for a series of daylight robberies. It painted a picture of a man who wandered a lot and tended to have kind of bad luck for some reason. And the state then brought up Alan B. Eaton, the chairman of the finance committee of the home services of the Red Cross, who Winfield told about the situation with Edward. Eaton testified that it was difficult to hear and understand Winfield after the procedure, so it would have been hard for him to have screamed out for help when Edward was in the room with him. Quote, he stated that he was too weak to resist or defend himself and no voice to call for any assistance, or he would have prevented any such actions himself. He also added that had he been in shape to do so, he would have done Gillespie serious bodily injury, end quote. Allen then claimed that Winfield told him he was being followed by apparent federal authorities and city detectives who were, quote, bothering him by following him up and telling him that they had facts to show that he never was in the Navy, end quote. He questioned the character of Gillespie, saying, quote, What I stated was that he was often known as the man of mystery because nobody knew what his business was, and for such reasons as that, he was often known to appear at various places, such as receptions, reception committees, and so forth, and nobody knew the why or wherefore of it. That I had heard is stated that he was a pensioner but knew nothing about it myself, end quote. Edward's lawyer, the defense, actually did a great job sowing the seed of doubt for the jury by asking each person how long they had known Edward Gillespie, many of whom said for many years, and if they had known of anything of his reputation to commit such a crime, all of which said no, not until this time. And he would then show Winfield Cahill as this like drifter who traveled from town to town or relied on the Red Cross and other charitable organizations for help wherever he went. And he really wasn't well known or trusted in the community. But Edward Gillespie was. So why would they trust him over the well-renowned Edward Gillespie? 
The defense called Miss Holloway, who checked Winfield Cahill into the hotel, and she described him as looking ill and stated that Edward did help him, but never locked the door, and she walked in repeatedly throughout the day and never witnessed anything unnatural going on between the two men. The next witness for the defense was the executive secretary of the Red Cross Rooms Home Service section, Mrs. Thomas. The biggest thing the defense revealed was that Winfield had asked for money repeatedly, and Edward offered services to help the young man, quote, but thought the boy needed a nurse, end quote. When Mrs. Thomas asked the doctor for a nurse, he told her, quote, that the boy didn't need a nurse. He needed good food and proper care, end quote. The next witness was John W. Eagleson, Idaho State Treasurer. He explained that he knew Edward Gillespie since about 1889 from his days at the University of Nebraska. And it was a short round of questions by the defense as he was pretty, you know, he was a really well high-profile witness. The big question was, quote, what is his character of morality? What has it been ever since you have known him? And Eagleson responded, I never heard anything against him in any way, and he has always, so far as I've known, had a good character, end quote. Mr. Holloway, the hotel owner, was then brought in, and he stated that he did witness Edward give Winfield a massage of his feet when Winfield complained that he was cold. When asked how he knew Edward, he stated, quote, I have known him more intimately since about 1906. I was elected constable here, and during the meetings of the legislature, I called on Mr. Gillespie for a good many favors, and he did me the favors, end quote. Next, the defense had E.G. Burnett, the adjutant of the soldier's home, come to the stand, and he was asked about Edward's morality and character, which he said was good. After that was the commandant of the Idaho soldier's home, S.M.C. Reynolds, and he said he didn't know of any traits against Edward, but did mention that, quote, on one or two occasions, I think I have heard him mention conditions that might be better at the home, and that is about all, end quote. The next witness, a nurse with the Red Cross named Mrs. Zumwalt, really didn't add much other than not seeing Edward in the room when she visited and noting that Winfield was extremely tired and drained from not eating for several days. America Weiss was the next witness who knew Edward through the ladies of the GRR who had never heard of anything against Edward. Another star witness then came to the stand, former Idaho Attorney General George H. Roberts, who lived in Nebraska in the 1860s and had known Gillespie, quote, ever since he was a little boy in Knickerbockers, end quote. And again, he said, no, there's nothing bad that's ever been said about this man or his morality. The next witness was Homer G. Patterson, who had lived as a roommate with Edward in a house on O'Farrell Street between 11th and 12th Street in Boise, and in the time that he had lived with Edward, he never knew of any immoral or unnatural character traits of his. Virginia Taylor, another member of the GAR, was the next to take the stand, and she had, quote, known nothing against his character nor his morality, and being associated as I have these years since our acquaintance through the order, we have met in a social way, and I have failed yet to ever find or see anything that I could class otherwise than as gentlemanly in Mr. Gillespie, end quote. Finally, to all these folks came to his defense, Edward himself took the stand, and he talked about his different land claims in Boise County and Bannock County and his work in New York and Washington, D.C., and he explains that a lot of the boys coming back after the armistice were being drugged with knockout drops in bars, and the doctors wouldn't go to the hotels, so he actually volunteered because the hotel manager knew about his past to help these soldiers, and he would massage their stomachs and their, their backs and their necks and their feet to help their blood circulation. 
He then recounted in detail all the aid he provided to Winfield, including feeding him, watching over him, nursing him, and recounted massaging Winfield to help his circulation. And at one point, he was so sweaty from doing it that he had to rest on the couch near the bed. At that point, Winfield woke up stark naked and started raving, and Edward shut the door so that the woman across the hallway wouldn't see him. Winfield then put on his Navy uniform and left the room. Edward noticed that he had cut himself and was getting blood on his pants, so he pulled his trousers down briefly to wipe the blood away. The defense then followed a line asking, quote, Did you ever put your hands under the covers? No, sir. Did you take his penis in your hand? No, sir. Did you take his penis in your mouth? No, I did not. Did you attempt to love him up and perform any of these things which a man would do with a woman or any of the things that he has accused you of? I certainly did not. Did you do anything with this person except to endeavor to bring him out of his weak condition? That was my sole idea. The prosecution then questioned Edward. At this time, Edward noted that Winfield turned to the group at one point in like a state of delirium and asked, quote, I fell out of the airplane and breast, didn't I? And Edward told him, I don't know anything about your airplane experience, end quote. So it didn't end up helping their case. The jury took everything and actually acquitted Edward Gillespie. He was not charged. But this wouldn't last long. This would be a stain on his reputation. Hmm. Almost exactly a year later, on September 9th, 1920, a new trial would start. This time, it would be the state of Idaho versus E.E. Gillespie and W.E. Danner. They were arrested in mid-August 1920 and charged with the infamous crime against nature and given a $3,000 bond to prevent them from fleeing. At the trial, an electrician for the Idaho Power Company named A.C. Sutton took the stand. And again, none of this was really documented in the Idaho Statesman or the newspapers. So all that we have is from these court transcripts. This electrician had worked for the company for a little over three years, and on August 15, 1920, he noted seeing Edward E. Gillespie and W.E. Danner in the Traction Company building on 7th and Bannock Street. They were in the waiting room between 8.30 and 9.30 in the morning. Sutton was, quote, sent to watch for certain parties by the Traction Company's general manager, Mr. Dalton, end quote. Now, Sutton's office was upstairs, and when he saw Gillespie enter the men's room, he went upstairs into his office, which happened to be right above the restroom. There were two screw holes that were open where lights had been screwed into the ceiling above into the restroom. And you could actually look down into the restroom below from this office room. I was like, what? Why didn't you fill those up? But he watched Gillespie sit down on the toilet. Then Danner entered the next stall. And between the stalls was a hole between two and two and a half inches in diameter. I mean, I guess I just, like, why are you looking? Right. Like, that feels as equally um, not great as what he's... Illegal, Ugh. right? Like, yeah, no, I don't like it. <laughs> like, that's very weird. He, he had something going on. So when asked what took place, Sutton said, quote, Well, I see him, which is referring to Danner, stand up stick his penis through the hole, and Gillespie was on this side. And what did Gillespie do? Well, from all appearances, why, he sucked him off, end quote. I am so sorry, everybody. <laughs> During this cross-examination, the defense lawyer asked if anyone was upstairs with him, and he said no, but that he watched the whole encounter, which lasted about 10 minutes before Danner left, and then Gillespie left 
almost immediately after. Okay, all right. Please tell me the defense is like, hey, buddy, why did you sit there and watch it the whole time? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that... They just are like, yeah, that's a normal thing to do when this thing is happening. I think that Sutton had established that he had been sent specifically to watch for this sort of encounter, that this sort of thing had been going on for quite a while. So a siren actually went off at the fire station right after all of this, which gave Sutton an idea as to what time that this all occurred between 8.30 and 9.30 in the morning. And he said that Danner had come by several times a week but would never speak to him. So he thought he was kind of the suspicious character. So when he saw him that morning, he knew something was up. When asked why Sutton suspected something was going on, he said, quote, well, because we had tried to pin those holes up and stop this and couldn't do it. And they asked, what do you mean by those holes? He says, this hole in the wall. You mean the partition between the two toilets? Yes, sir. You tried to pin that up and couldn't do it. We put plates over it and two-by-fours and everything else. What became of them? They came off. We don't know what. <laughs> the jury actually like heard this and were made aware of Edward's run-in with the, the same crime a year before. And Danner would actually later write to the courts that because he was jointly charged with Edward Gillespie, it, quote, greatly prejudiced my cause as he had been charged and tried with and for the same offense prior to the time of our trial and for the further reason that the evidence showed that said Gillespie was the actor in this crime. I further contend that the evidence against me was insufficient to warrant my conviction and that I was and am not guilty of this offense and am a victim of a case of mistaken identity. All of the evidence identifying me and connecting me with this crime was given by a person who made their observations through a small screw hole in the ceiling of the room where the crime was charged to have been committed, end quote. Of course this would affect the trial as they knew that Edward had this kind of little spot from a year prior. Beyond that, there was an issue relationship between the jury and the prosecuting attorney, who most of the jurors were acquainted with in some way. They all said that it wouldn't influence their judgment on the case. But during the deliberation, one of the jurors stated that, quote, he had known the Delana boys, meaning the prosecuting attorney and his brother, for a long time and that they had represented him in a number of matters and that they were very considerate and fair and suggested to the jury that if said attorneys did not know that they had evidence to convict the above-named defendant, they would never have started the case, and if the court and counsel had not shut out the evidence that the state offered, they would have proved both the defendants guilty beyond any doubt. End quote. So the jury ended up by saying, quote, I know that they are guilty, end quote. And this would come up when Danner and Gillespie's lawyers actually applied for new trials after all of this, uh, stating that the jurors were already convinced of the two men's guilt by the support of the prosecuting attorney. There's just, like, such a lack of evidence and proof and this questionable, like, so you're by yourself and you witness this and you are sure it's these two men, like... And through, like, a tiny screw hole, yeah... No, there are so many issues with this. Regardless, the jury convicts these two men, and they are sentenced to five to five and one and a half years in the Idaho State Penitentiary on November 19th, 1920. 
And both Danner and Gillespie, they made short statements in which they declared themselves innocent of the crime. Quote, Danner was unable to stand the strain. His eyes filled with tears and his body shook with stifled sobs as sentence was pronounced. Gillespie appeared to conduct himself stoically. End quote. They are both received at the Idaho State Penitentiary on November 20th, 1920 for the infamous crime against nature. Gillespie is given the number 2911. He lists his age as 52 years old, born in Omaha, Nebraska, March 24th, 1868. He lists his occupation as a rancher. His height, he's 5 feet 6 and 1 eighth inch tall. He has light complexion, and the note card attached to his mugshot said that he had a freckled complexion. He was 146 pounds. He had red hair, blue eyes. He was single. His father died when he was 29, and his mother passed away when he was 28. He left home at the age of 30. He had religious instruction in the Methodist church and attended Sunday school and still attended a Methodist church just prior to incarceration. He could read and write and had a higher school and collegiate education and had attended school 16 years. He was abstinent and does not use tobacco. He had no former imprisonment. His nearest relative was Mrs. J.T. East in Denver, Colorado. He had a regular build. His teeth were fair. He was clean-shaven, wore a seven-and-a-half size boot, size seven hat, had $5.87 and a suitcase bundle in a tin box. And his parents were born in the United States, and he had lived in Idaho for 18 years at this point. He had a vaccination scar and freckles on his upper back and neck, and on his mugshot you can see a little dimple on his chin. W.E. Danner was 45 years old and from Illinois, and his parents were German immigrants, and he was an upholsterer by trade and had lived in Boise about three years. He was also single and did not have any children, and he lived with his father until his father's death five years earlier. The prosecuting attorney, out of the questioner about Edward Gillespie, that asked about his characters and associates, he said that Edward was, quote, not a man who had many personal friends or associates, end quote, which I thought was like, what? When asked if he had been in trouble of a criminal nature before, he said, quote, he was prosecuted in the courts of Ada County for the commission of the same offense of which he is now convicted about six or eight years prior to this conviction, end quote. And I looked and I couldn't find any mention of any other crime against nature charges in like 1911, 1912. So I'm not sure what he's referring to here. Did he just get the the years wrong? He must have, yeah. Hmm. When asked about his opinion in regard to the criminal tendencies of the prisoners, he wrote, quote, I regard him as a degenerate and persistent in the character of offense with which he is now convicted, end quote. And he regarded Edward as a menace to society. And in describing the crime, he described Edward as, quote, the aggressor an inducer in the matter, and there was evidence showing him to be associated with others in commission of similar offenses at about the same time. The crime was committed in the depot of the Idaho Power Company at Boise, Idaho. End quote. Immediately, Edward started to fight this conviction and attempted to get a new trial. Judge Charles F. Reddick wrote to the State Board of Pardons on April 4, 1922, before Edward appeared before the board, and he wrote, quote, I have no recommendation to make in this matter and prefer to leave it with the body that the Constitution has vested with authority over the same. I desire to state, however, that had I been passing upon the guilt or innocence of the applicant, I would not have convicted on the evidence adduced. 
It was one of those cases in which impartial minds might arrive at different conclusions, and after the jury had passed upon the matter, I did not feel at liberty to disturb their action. The case had been tried a short time before, resulting in a disagreement. It had been the subject of comment in the community and in the press, and I felt this had its influence, yet no application for a change of venue was made, end quote. So during this time of the prison, you know, the T-shirt factory, that's that's all kind of under construction. So he probably would have just been getting in on that. Patrick Murphy is, is working here and he's making all of his hobby craft items. So he may have worked with Patrick on different things. We don't really know a lot about his time here, though. On April 13th, 1923, Edward's sentence was actually commuted to three years flat. Meanwhile, Danner was actually pardoned two days later on April 15th, 1922. So, Edward sat in the prison for another year and was released on November 19th, 1923. From there, the next place I found him was living in uh, San Diego at the Helping Hand Home as an inmate in the 1930s census. And there was a a children's helping hand home for crippled children and one for seniors. And I don't know what led to Edward being there and being one of the younger, quote, inmates in the home's care. The next thing I found was his death. He died on June 17th, 1935. And his obituary reads, quote, Ed E. Gillespie, 68, former Lincoln resident, was buried in San Diego, California, Thursday afternoon, Ben and Clyde Gillespie of Lincoln, his nephews, were informed Thursday. He died June 17th following a lingering illness. Mr. Gillespie was born in Omaha March 24th, 1867, and at an early age moved to Lincoln, where he graduated from Lincoln High School and University of Nebraska. While in Lincoln, Mr. Gillespie was at one time engaged in newspaper work and was later transferred to the Washington Bureau of the Associated Press. He was the son of the first state auditor, John Gillespie. He left Lincoln in 1920 and moved to Idaho and later to San Diego. Besides two nephews living in Lincoln, he leaves two others, Hugh and John of Omaha, end quote. And that is the end of Edward E. Gillespie. It seems that this crime led to his downfall and his kind of banishment from Idaho. He probably fled the state and tried to start new in California, but... I could not find what he was doing there and, you know, what his illness was or anything else. So hmm. I don't know if uh, if he was set up, if he was actually a homosexual man who was, you know, performing these acts or, or not. Like all the evidence is kind of sketchy and mm-hmm. it's uh, kind of heartbreaking that he had such an influential life leading up to 1920 when he is brought down Hmm. that story is so and a lot of those you know infamous crimes of nature stories are just so hard to hear because if he was gay or or homosexual like you know he is punished for doing the things that felt natural to him and um it's it's just it's so hard to hear um especially because you know i like i'm part of the lgbt lots of people that I know are and I just think about you know wanting to just live the way that I feel that that is comfortable for me and to know that it was illegal and to like go to prison for that would just Mm -hmm. uh, you know I think there aren't any words to describe how horrible that that would be and how scary and you know if he wasn't how you know 
even worse is that, that he's being charged with this crime that he didn't commit and, and his life is essentially ruined because of the stigma that, you know, this mm-hmm. very religious country put on these feelings that are, uh, and these lifestyles that are different from, you know, what they believe is sort of the quote unquote, like the only way that there is. And, uh, it just, it's hard every time I hear about it. And every time I read about it, it's just so hard to hear and so sad because whether they were gay or not gay, it they shouldn't have to go to prison for that. You know, it's just, uh, yeah. no, it's so hard. Yeah. We've, come a long way absolutely and just in the last 10 years like mm-hmm. the legalization of same-sex marriage like mm-hmm. wow but mm-hmm. we had to cross into the 21st century to even get to that point yeah so you know this is one of those stories that i thought was going to be a simple like oh you know this guy committed <laughs> this crime and you know but oh my gosh it just turned into oh man it's been my life for like the last week as i've been researching yeah. and writing this and it's it's heartbreaking. Like this yeah. guy had so much to offer and, you know, his sexuality was the one thing that led to his downfall. If right. it was even real, like, right. oh man. It's very interesting. Very, I mean, great work as usual. Aye, that was a lot. I'm sorry, everybody, no, but it was really like, interesting. gonna do the work. I'm gonna share it all. Totally. All right, Sky. Well, well, everybody, thank you for listening. I hope I didn't offend any listeners today, but uh this is, I think, the first real sex crime that I've covered. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's something that I, I don't, you know, I try to stray away from because yeah. it's just a difficult topic. But, mm-hmm. you know, this one had quite the impact. Really ruined people's lives. And mm-hmm. it's something we still deal with today, people's sexualities. And, you know, everybody's individual thoughts on that. So, mm-hmm. well, thank you all for listening. And we will see you next week. Do your own time. Do your own number. See you. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And new this season, we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.